Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Nabby McCannum. And now featuring 50% more wealth. Oh boy, here we go again. Another exciting episode of Clarity. I'm joined here with Will. Hey everyone, hope you had a good week. I do too, but that week is about to get a whole lot better. In this episode, Will continues his interview with Brandon, the creator of Swordsfall, a tabletop RPG setting that can also expand into novels, movies, everything. You're gonna wanna get on that bandwagon immediately. As of this recording, the Kickstarter for Swordsfall already has $63,396, backers, and six days left to fund the project. What are you waiting for? I interviewed Brandon before the Kickstarter was even live, so it's amazing seeing how well he's done. We can all help out and unlock two more stretch goals, one at $100,000 and the other at $130,000. This is a project I believe in, and you should too. For those of you who are new to the show, you might be wondering, how do you go from gender equality to tabletop RPGs? And granted, inclusivity is a common thread throughout it, but these interview-focused episodes are going to deviate a bit from the theme of the first season. That doesn't mean you shouldn't check out other episodes. Please write a review on iTunes, share it with some friends, or post on a Twitter account. Without you, we're nothing. And without further ado, let's get into the second part of the interview with Brandon. One maxim a lot of people use is yes and, the improv mantra. Mm-hmm. The way I like to frame it is you often get yes and followed up by my character wouldn't do that. And <laughs> to me, those are completely incompatible. You should be finding a reason for your character to do that rather than just saying, no, that that's not possible. That's something where, because I would have that problem where I had people who just weren't really getting into their character I would always try to sit down with my players and be like, okay, so what are you doing with your character? What's up? And if I sense that they just had no idea of what they wanted to do or backstory, I started asking them questions. And eventually I found a whole list of character building questions and I sat down and I made my own, I think it was like 15 questions to answer for making your character. It was the things that I felt like you needed to at least think about to have your character Sometimes you can't answer the question fully, but just thinking about the question gets you somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to answer, but now it's in your brain. And like before, you never thought about like, well, oh, my character is a rogue. Cool. Where did your dad go to school? What? I have a dad. Where do you go to school? Oh, he had a life. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you have to sit down and write like a detailed story. But now it makes you at least think about what kind of people your parents were. Did they even go to school? Was he a school kind of person? Are you a rogue because he was also a roguey kind of person? Sometimes that can be that simple, but at least it gets you thinking about it. And I feel like if you just start thinking in your mind about this as a character, you instantly start thinking about a storyline, you know, because that's what we do. We start picking stuff. So if you ask the right questions, even if they don't have the answers, they'll start thinking about it and fill that in. 
I've had players who couldn't answer the question then. And then like three or four sessions down the line, they were like, oh, oh, this is perfect. Yeah, my dad was blah, 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 blah. I got it. It clicked to them. It was in their brain thinking, thinking, thinking. And then finally they're like, oh, yeah, this is the thing. D&D doesn't particularly encourage that. I mean, 5th edition does better, but it's always more aimed at more of a simulation experience. And I feel like sometimes narrative games go on the other way in where it's just super blank and like, tell me about your character or the the if and thens. And I'm kind of like, I want to tread somewhere between there. You pick an ancestor, you pick where you're from, tell them about your family. And then your profession has its own rookie story because in swords fall, I call them professions because that's what it is. It is a profession. It's what you do. Because I feel like that's something that kind of gets left out in most tabletop is a thought of a class is kind of weird because it's identity, but it's really about what you do. Right, right. And when you separate the two, you really get a character because it's about who you were and then cool, this is what you do. And that does change things. Your profession changes how you interact in your life. As a content creator, I will go a different road through my life than someone who's a lawyer, regardless if we both came from the same place. Your profession changes you. So I wanted to have that feel. And obviously, you can make up your own background, but I gave people three backgrounds that were very lore theme driven to give you a feel of what the ethos of that profession is. And you can come up with your own stuff, but it's going to be very clear that, no, I can get a feel for this. This is what the history is and blah, blah, blah. And then now you're there. So that if you want to be that kind of character or whatnot, you feel like you have a spot to belong in. So Celestial Shields in my game is kind of the closest you would say to a paladin, but they're not paladins. Being a Celestial Shield is about being a shield for the people from the gods. That what is created to be. That doesn't mean you, the player, have to be that way. But it also means that if you are not that way, you have a natural conflict with the world. You will be the one mean, evil Celestial Shield. The game doesn't say you can't be, but the world itself has an expectation that you are not. That is an alignment, but there's that culture expectation. Like, well, Celestial Shields protect people. You're like, well, not this guy. I protect people from money, so open your wallet. And that's the character progression. You get to feel like you are your own person, even though you are a Celestial Shield. But the way that you baked it was different enough to feel like a different character. What you mentioned earlier was really important. The character should undergo a personal arc. The campaign should be a major arc, but each character should also be growing and responding to all the environmental stimuli. And I think what you talked about with identity was also equally important where if you apply it to the real world and you meet someone and say, hey, who are you? And they respond, I'm an accountant. That's really not answering the question. Exactly. That says something about what you do during the day, but doesn't say a lot about who you are as a person. And it's easy to fall into that trap and just identify solely as what you're doing in the moment. And even then, if someone says I'm an accountant, in a sense, it does tell you something about them. To compare it to D&D, if someone is like, I'm a paladin in D&D, it doesn't really tell you much about them. It just tells you that, okay, they have these abilities, they have some money and some other stuff, but there's no basis. But if someone says, I'm an accountant, I don't care who you are, you automatically have some image in your head. A little bit nerdy, probably good with numbers, some classes. Is it a stereotype? Meh. There's something about staring at a computer screen very long that makes people need glasses. So check. If you're dealing with numbers all day, yeah, you kind of have to be good at math or you're going to have a hard time being an accountant, or you probably wouldn't even like being an accountant. A profession is interesting because it doesn't tell you about the person, but it tells you what they like or what they're capable of. 
but nothing else, you know? And that's why the character progression is important because that tells you truly who they actually are. And if you combine the two, like that's really what makes it great. Someone pointed out as Star Wars was really good at that. Han Solo is a smuggler, that's his profession. But as a character, he grows and he defies what one would think as a smuggler. And that's what makes him Han Solo the character. To me, he's the perfect example of a lovable rogue, where he's always trying to be tough and chill like he doesn't care, but he obviously does. And that's a good way to play the more questionable character in terms of ethics, but have them be a team player. And I think what you've been discussing, all these tools are great ways to do that, where you get your players collaborating and building off of each other rather than just butting heads constantly. No one wants to feel like they're watching someone else have fun and they're not. They want to be involved. So that's kind of where that clash becomes. It was like, well, no, my storyline, my storyline. Mm-hmm. And no one's really wrong. It is your time at the table. You did sit down and buy the book and read and made the character like just like you all did. It's this weird thing where some of the ways that we have built characters only make it easier to conflict. And so, for example, you were saying he's a great definition of a lovable rogue. I don't know if you could make him in D&D. You would have to be really creative, especially like something like 3.5, because alignments is weird like that. He goes all over the place, and that's what makes him a lovable character, because he's deciding what he wants to do. And being a smuggler has its own rules, because there's rules of the world. You have to be kind of ruthless as a smuggler, because that's what you're doing. You're doing illegal shit. Like, if you're nice, you're going to get caught, or someone's going to rat you out. So you have to be hard. But this Princess Leia is kind of cute, mm-hmm. you know, so well, like, how can I go back and forth between that line to do what I need to do for my world, for my job, but also what satisfies me as a person? Sometimes the problem is that tabletop has made it too easy to make a very clear real road. And it's been really bad at giving you a feel like you have a path, but then you can veer off and not feel like you just destroyed your whole character. You have that one time where you're just mad. You're like, no, I'm hitting the be a total asshole button. You're not an asshole all the time, but you built up to that confluence of that moment. And games should have that. I would dare say anybody who thinks about their favorite game probably has that moment in that tabletop where you've been building up to this moment and you finally get to really be your character and, and do that thing or that move or something you've been waiting for to really show off who your character is growing into. And that's what gets people. That's why people love those long campaigns because it feels like you're building something. And we just have to be kind of careful as creators that we make sure that we give people the right tools for the theme and not just either give them a basket full of random tools or just tell them, here's your one and go at it. There's like a balance and it's weird. And I'm kind of finding out that I feel like some of the best ways to do is in in stages. And Blaze in the Dark does a really good example of that, of if you do things at stages, you only have to have them answer whatever questions you need at the moment. So technically, you're answering dozens of questions doing all this stuff, but it's only asking you one piece at a time. And it makes it really easy to digest it. So by the time you get to the end, oh, like, yeah, I did make a whole character do all these things, but it felt very natural. So by the time you get to the end, you're like, oh, yeah, this is what my character is. I feel like that's that next level of design. And I've already heard Pathfinder, the new two edition, is doing that. So that's partially why I'm really trying hard to get this going is because I don't want Pathfinder to steal my soul. (laughs) That makes sense. It's unfortunate you have that outside pressure. But again, like you mentioned earlier, that might be positive in terms of working harder and your work ethic. 
I think what you were talking about with stages was interesting too, where to me that mirrors more closely a personal relationship. Creating a character is very much like meeting someone you don't know. You don't instantly have a background dump of everything they've ever done, all their motivations, what they like, dislike. You find pieces of that and learn it over time. And a game system that fosters that really replicates what it's like to form a relationship with someone and get to know them truly. And really, I mean, that's what makes it so much fun. You are creating a relationship with your character, you know. I guess in a sense, the uh, the game and the character is almost like your baby. You decide you want to play this game, you want to be in this world, and you're trying to figure out, okay, how can I interact with it in the most me way? Because every character is is an extension of yourself in some fashion. It's like a secondary you, the cooler you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. It's a total lie to ever be like, yeah, I can totally remove myself from all my experiences and be this totally different person for an hour at a time. There's always going to be shades of you influencing that character. That's inevitable. But you can challenge yourself to really try to see things from a different perspective. And one thing a friend of mine suggested, if there's someone you don't like in your life, building a character off of some of their qualities is a really good way to be empathetic towards them and try to understand where they're coming from. That one I totally agree with. There's definitely something to say about seeing something from someone else's perspective. And I would dare say that anyone says that they can make a character that's not like themselves is lying. Because when you think about it, you really can't see past yourself. It's impossible because you are just you. That's it. There's only you in your brain. You only see you. There's just you. Anything besides you is you trying really hard to imagine being someone you are not. If you're imagining being someone you are not, then it is literally your perspective of what someone else is. Not truly what they are, how you think they are, and what you can accurately replicate. Every character, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, it is always some shade of you just colored in a different hue. And I feel like that's fine. You just have to be honest about it. And I feel like if you really are honest about it, that's what makes it fun. I don't understand why people go, oh, this character's nothing like me. You can have a murder hobo and be like, that's a little bit of you. That's fine. You just don't go around being an actual murder hobo in real life. It's an escape fantasy and it's okay. And I feel like people have to say the disclaimer of, no, I made it totally different for myself. Like it makes it okay. And it's like, no, you can say this character is like you. Swords Fall is full of different versions of me. And I recognize that. And I try really hard to be like, cool, what would be me like this? And you really have to be cognitive of that and not run away from it. And there's moments where... Especially my own writing, I look at my, whoa, that's hella you. <laughs> you need to fix that a little bit because that's too much of you. You need to be honest about it. And I feel like when you do that, especially in building, it frees you, you know, because then it's like, I want to be the magic version of myself that's this. And that's fun. You can also be different genders of you. And I feel like, especially that's something guys have to get used to. It is okay to make a gender bender version of yourself. It is okay. And in fact, you probably should. I agree. That's something I haven't done myself yet, where I've only played male characters or characters where gender was really not an important part of them. But I do want to play a female character. I'm just a bit wary. I don't want to go down bad pathways where it's offensive. And I think there's some responsibility in respect to that. But also, this is a safe place, generally. You're playing with people who are supporting you, and it's okay to make mistakes in that context. The key to that is being open to feedback where they're like, whoa, that extremely promiscuous woman really seems like more of a fantasy that you have and doesn't feel like a real person. How about you adapt it in this way? And I think if you're open to that, then feel free to explore things. I'll dare say that 
you're almost better off by having someone treat your character as stereotypically as you have treated them. There is no more greater lesson from a guy than when he makes what he thinks is a sexy chick and his dudes try to hit on them all the time. Mm -hmm. You can watch it and this to it and they're like, dude, stop it. And that's when it's like that <laughs> lesson of, yes, this is the lesson. <laughs> that almost has to be the point where like you make a character and you realize after a couple sessions that you made a list full of stereotypes and shitty like gender stereotypes. Sometimes I think that's the thing that people have to do. You have to go into it and be like, yeah, I'm going to make a female character. And not necessarily have your friends tailor it. Write what you think a female character should be like in a void. If people are afraid to do that, that should be the first bell that you need to branch out more. If you're not comfortable with that, that literally is your brain telling you, I don't have enough information to do this. All I know are the negatives. And that's a sign. Being embarrassed by that kind of helps you understand, you know, Let's say you made the generic, sexy armored character who's promiscuous because every dude seems to do that. And it's like, oh, it's going to be fun. I'm going to mm. my homo way around this game. It's going to be fun. As a GM, I'd kind of hope that it'd be like, okay, this is a learning lesson because this is ridiculous. And then you treat them how that player would have treated them. So treating them like they're in the back and treating them like a sex object. And every time they try to come up with something in the plane, be like, uh, uh, shut up, pretty boobs. And treating them like that. And it only takes a game or two to be like, this is ridiculous. Why do you treat me like that? Well, that's the character you made. And so there has to be that, oh, I made a terrible, awful, stereotypical character. And this is why it's bad, because this is not realistic. That's what makes you change your mind. That's why I feel like you hear a lot of stories about, especially with guys where they'll have this understanding when they have daughters. And it's not so much because of the ownership thing, which I have a daughter as well. It forces you to think outside yourself. You have no choice. It's in your face. All of a sudden you realize how often you call women females. And you're like, this is awkward. I shouldn't say that around my daughter. It's a very looking glass. And I feel like tabletops can be the same thing in a different way, you know, in a more of a, either about binary or gender or racism, that same thing. If people start making stereotypical characters and their characters treated like that stereotype is very much a, ooh, that doesn't feel good. I don't like this at all. This is why you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And that certainly ties back into show the consequences of actions or character types. And my general advice would be, if you're creating a female character and all your initial notes have to do with physical appearance, Maybe start again. Maybe come up with who that person actually is as opposed to what they look like, whether that's ugly or attractive. There shouldn't just be a physical description. You need to understand what motivates this character as well. And then kind of backs full circle back to the lack of diversity because so many men aren't used to having female leads or written by women. Sometimes I don't think they understand how similar their needs are with just slight differences. They either tend to think that they're 100% different creatures or they want the exact same thing. We're all humans. It's just you want A instead of B. That's it. You don't have to know what they want A. You just want A. It's very much that. And it's the little things. And it's just so hard. But that's kind of the hurdle. I think your advice about play a different gender, but as yourself, is a great starting point. And that's something I'm going to try where... My hesitancy has very much been tied to, oh, I won't understand their thought process. It'll just be me making decisions in a different body. But that's a great place to start. That's a foundation you can build upon to really try to understand that different life experience and perspective. It's also affirming, man. One of the, which consequentially I'm glad, it's one of my favorite characters and has become one of the reader's favorite characters, is I didn't necessarily start off as a gender bender myself, but I did start off 
knowing particularly that I wanted that character to be female because there was a point that I wanted to make. I always have a tendency, like when I write initially, I just I write very free. I write how I would want to. And then I'll go back and be like, I'm going to edit the tone of this or whatnot. When I wrote Nubaya, who's a pirate, I knew that I wanted to tweak the perception of pirates a little bit. Not that I'm the first one or the only one people have done it, but I knew specifically in Tabletop, I wanted to change how people did pirates because I feel like sometimes the problem went from me was either pirates were all dudes and then they took dudes and then put boobs on it and was like, cool, now we have chick pirates, mm -hmm. but it wasn't any better. Like it doesn't have the symbols of anything that I feel like women really truly want. And I feel like when you look at what ones they embrace or what ones they don't, it's very clear that that's not what they want either. So I wanted to try to work on that. So I started this story. Basically, the, there's a ton of ocean in Tycor and there are pirates. And I wanted it to be a feeling of pirates weren't about stealing. Pirates were about being free at all costs. The ocean's a dangerous place and they're willing to deal with that and whatnot because they don't want to be tied down to anything. That's just their philosophy. Not good, not bad. That's just what they believe in. The main biggest pirate crew is called Heaven's Fall. And basically I wrote this little mini intro story about the current leader. And at the time that she took over the pirate crew, she was just a little girl. And I had this image in my head of the stereotypical pirate and his big scruffy beard and maybe a pig leg and he's, you know, he's talks mad shit. And when I thought about the character, I don't know why, it just instantly popped in my mind. I just imagine the small 10-year-old little black girl who was bald, or just not like a massive scalp, but just a look of just, you know how kids have that look of, I'm not amused. Mm. <laughs> That's just like so cold-hearted. It's just this not amused look. And this pirate guy is just talking down to her. And he's like, oh, what are you going to do, little girl? Like, this is the last time you ever, this is my authority. What are you going to do? I mean, you want to fight? Let's do this. And I wanted this feeling of like, sometimes you just don't talk shit. While he's talking shit, she just slits his throat. Blood splashes all over her head and everything. And this crew of, of dudes are looking at the situation. They're like, what just happened? And there's a sense of, oh, if things are changing, just because you thought she was a girl and a little kid doesn't mean you underestimate her. She's a pirate, just like you all are. Like, she lives on the same boat. She trained with you all. You messed up. He challenged her. She said, okay, challenge brought. And I wanted that feeling to be in that. And so I wasn't quite sure how that would go off because I was like, I don't want it to feel like I'm just being like, oh, yeah, because you never know how people are going to think about it. But when I put that story out on World Anvil, it was the first one that was really popular. People were like, oh, man, uh, that sounds so badass. I love Nubai. And I sent it to like my female friends and they like overwhelmingly loved it. I've had people ask me repeatedly about when we're going to get art for her. People have wanted like pens. Like they've really taken to it because she just has this sort of feeling of I don't give a fuck. It's not masculine or feminine. Yeah, she's a woman, but she just is. But she's very much, I do what I want. You step on me, it'll be the last time. And that's something that resonates with women. Because when I start asking them, like, hey, what resonates to you in characters? It was always they want someone who was loyal, but not loyal to the point where they were being abused. They wanted to be loyal and respected and powerful. And I'm like, I get that. <laughs> I want that too. That makes sense. That's it. It's nothing special. It's just the same shit you want to, just people that look like them. That's great. And I like how you're flipping some of these tropes. You just expect pirates to be one way. And I think you see that with pirates, cowboys, samurais, ninjas, where they've become so prevalent throughout media that they're only presented as one way. When, like you're saying with the fantasy races and stuff like that, these were individual people. They're not just a monoculture of robots. 
all these people have different experiences and those shape how they react, what kind of characteristics they have. So I think it's great that you're embracing that, especially with non-male characters and these professions. I feel like right now, I see a lot of people are like, oh, it's so creative. And really, that's ultimately what I'm doing. Every time I come down to a trope or something that's kind of expected in a fantasy sense, I stop and I'm like, cool, what is this message really saying? What are the cultural elements that are baked into it? And then I rip it apart. I'm very much a deconstructiveness. I really enjoy getting to the heart of something. So I take a trope and I'm like, cool, what do people actually want from this? Not the stereotypes on top of it that give them a sense of it, but what do they actually want? People love pirates because they love the thought of being free. The thought of being on an ocean, on a boat with your own crew, your homies. No one tells you what to do. There's no job. That's what they love. Freedom, adventure, high seas. Doesn't have to be stereotypical. That's just that. You can have any other mix of those crews in it as long as it has those themes. Same thing with cowboy. A cowboy is basically just a land pirate. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good way to put it. (laughs) You know, same thing. And it doesn't have to be stereotypical. And same thing with ninjas. My minor was actually Japanese history and studies. So I definitely have read a bit about it in a more historical sense. There's definitely themes and things that I appreciate that I also know is way too easy to just culturally appropriate the fuck out of. So I've been trying really hard to be like, cool, what's the ethos of a ninja? Why do people like the concept of a ninja? I'm not just going to take a ninja and make it black and be like, cool. Afro ninjas, because that would just be the same thing as what other people do. So it was like, cool. What do people actually like about ninjas? Well, obviously, there's something cool about being invisible and no one can see you because sometimes you just don't want to be seen. And that's what ninjas do when they're all silent. And there's just something cool about the silent badass. We love that. Absolutely. And so that's what Shadow Tales are. Shadow Tales are my version of a ninja. I don't even have to refer to it as a ninja. But if you start reading here in the description, you're like, oh, shit. They're like shadow ninjas and people have already said it and I don't have to say the word at all. I can just take the concept of it and rip out all the cultural preparation and just take the ethos of it and then put it in Africa and you can still get the same vibe without any of the trappings. I like that. And I also like deconstructing what is mythology about these character types and what is actual history. The actual history of ninjas It's very different than what we believe about ninjas. So different. I think playing with that is fascinating. On a side tangent, because this is one of my favorite things that people don't realize about ninjas, really what ninjas were, were they were cross-dressing. That was the number one thing. They would dress up as women because at that time in Japan, they played into sexist stereotypes. There's something about the true history of ninjas that cracks me up because they recognize that people had these stereotypes. They knew that at that time in history, And this is the funny thing, too, that people don't realize. People had really shitty eyesight. People make these stories about how, especially Game of Thrones, where like a girl will cut her hair and live like a boy. And I'm like, does anybody in 2019 pause to think about how hard that is to do nowadays? Part of the problem that the trans community has is is how hard it is to pass. And that becomes the checkmark. If you pass, if you don't pass, do you want to pass? Do you care about that? Because we kind of recognize the differences. And what we don't talk about is in those fantasy times, People had terrible eyesight and they didn't have glasses. So it was really, really easy to mistake a girl with short hair for a dude from far away. So they used that to their advantage. And because there was a very distinctive dress between men and women that was just culturally expected, they were like, cool, well, we're ninjas. We don't care. We'll dress up like women. And they would use that to get into places, to spy, assassination. That was where the invisible came from. It wasn't that they were all in black in the dark. It was that they would dress up like geishas and other people. 
you know, you see like this typical ninja short sword. They never really made short swords. But what they would do is when a katana would break, instead of throwing away, they would take the katana and they would have it in the sheath. So if you're a samurai going to fight, you fight based on distance. So you assume that you're fighting the normal seven foot blade, except here's this guy. He steps in front and he only has a four foot blade, you know, so you go to parry and now you miss and you get cut. And that's where all that ninja stuff comes from is literally from that. That's it. Everything else is this mystery and this ethos that they made. And there's even real evidence that says that the original you know, like ninjas who worked under like Koga and under like the real Daimo created that mythos to hide what they were actually doing. So there's a good chance that they were the ones who made up that they could do magic and run on water so that people wouldn't suspect the guy dressed up as the geisha walking into the place. Real history is crazy. I didn't know that about the prevalence of cross-dressing, which is fantastic. I knew that they would disguise themselves as farmers, and a lot of the weapons are very based off of farm tools. But to me, it's like real history is almost more fantastical than fantasy is. And strangely, we go for this weird version of realism that doesn't make any sense all the time. Real history is way more crazy than most fiction. And that's what drives me sometimes is I see people talk about conspiracy and stuff like that. And I'm like, real history has some crazy stuff that you could just copy, paste, change a name, bestseller. History has some crazy stuff. So sometimes I feel a little guilty because I know that Swordfall is going to be recognized only because I'm one of the few people digging these stories out of Africa. Because some of them are just amazing. There's some stories I found that I was like, I could just take this and change the names. No one's ever heard about this. It would be amazing. History is so crazy like that. Well, don't feel guilty. It's overdue, so take advantage of it. It's everyone else's fault for not digging into this rich history. I agree. And that's why I'm also going to do a YouTube series. I was hoping to do it this year, but considering the way the art book and core book are going, it'll probably be either later in the year. But I'm going to do YouTube videos where I talk about the stories that I've read, some of the research I've gotten, because there's so much amazing stuff that I've never heard used. Like one of the big things that I don't know if you've seen, but people are starting to read into is that king is a gender neutral word in my world. Because overall, in most of pre-colonial Africa, king was just the name of whoever ruled. It wasn't gender specific. So if you were a woman and you ruled, cool, you were king. And there were plenty of those. Like it wasn't necessarily something where it was a gendered word because the thing that I always don't like is you can say queen, but queen always automatically means below king. Right, right. So king is just king. So if you read on Warren Anvil, especially like Order of the Divine Phoenix, a couple of people have already been like, wait, what? You said king, but you said her. I'm like, yeah, because all the kings in Groot are women. And there's like this weird thing where they pause and they're like, oh, I can almost tell where sometimes people want to fight it. But then you realize there's no reason that king has to be gendered. I like that you're taking advantage of this while world building. You're critically looking at different systems, terms, and words. Do we need that? Is that integral to this? Or is it just something that we've culturally added, like with King? That's what I try to do in everything. Any term that I pretty much use in Swords Fall, I've guaranteed stopped and thought about and been like, okay, what does that mean? Are there trappings to it? I've been trying really hard to get away from using the word magic. And I just, I had to realize I had to give up last month. I was like, there's just no way magic is too ingrained. Some stuff just has trappings that don't have to. And especially since I'm using Africa as a source, it is in itself different enough from the get-go to where I can throw out so many standard tropes and just start fresh. And so that's been 
really exciting to be able to relook at how kings are and how countries work and how currency works. You know, I get to pause and really redo that. You don't see many games nowadays that literally just say, yeah, there's no money. And if they do, it's like a hand waving. But I'm really trying hard to be like, it's not a hand wave. It's just a world and a culture that never put emphasis on currency. I feel like we don't pause to be like, is there a different way to do stuff? And if you're a content creator, build the world how you want it to be. That's great. And as someone who personally is waning on capitalism, I'm fascinated to see how that works in your game setting. It's been super fun, man. I've always been like a little bit of like a progressive guy. It's hard not to when you get into philosophy. But then you sit down and A, you realize how trapped people are about capitalism. Like I can't tell you how often I've had discussions about things like in Swordsfall, magic is everywhere. There is no, in essence, mages or anything like that because everybody can do magic. And so people immediately think, oh my God, everyone's going to be running around throwing fireballs. And I'm like, oh no, all humans can jump or punch or kick everybody in the face, but you don't run around punching everybody all the time. When everybody has something that in itself makes it less special, it creates a divide between just the generic people who, yeah, oh, that's cool. You can do magic. So can my grandma and the people who can really, really do the stuff that's going to like take your breath away. So by giving it to everybody, I got a chance to make it more extraordinary and at the same time, more ordinary. One of the first things that someone commented, it was like, well, if everyone has magic, why go through those effort to be a Mawandi, which is like a, an extremely high level diviner? Like, why do that when you can just be like a farmer if magic is everywhere? And the question kind of struck me. And I was like, wait, what? And I realized that in itself, there's like a value proposition built into how we look at things. Well, why would I do this if this is easier? And it's like, well, does it have to be about money or ease? Wouldn't it be if everyone can do whatever they want, then you're really doing what you truly want or conflict what your family wants you to do or what your country needs you to do. But everyone is capable of it to a degree. And that changes the scope of it. And I've really not had to fight against it, but I've, there's been a few people who have had to been like, sit down and I've had to like philosophize and like, pause. <laughs> Where is this coming from? Mm. Have you ever thought about that? Does it really matter? If you could do anything right now and if you didn't have to go to your job, would you actually sit at home and do nothing? You might for a day or two, but you'd want to do something. You'd actually want to do the thing you really want to do, whatever that is. Yeah, it's the same thing. And then I think sometimes the systems we have in our current life, we think that because that's the only way that we've known that that's the only way it can be. And it's like, you can exist without money. There's other forms. It's just that in a globalistic economy, currency is good. And that's why in Swordsfall, the globalist economy is different because it's actually built on ore, Azurian, much like how like we originally were built on gold before digital and big gold money and whatnot. So there's some of those trends you can't get away from. You need a way to barter and trade. That's just human nature. But that doesn't necessarily have to be money. Because if you think about it, like, what is money? People are like, I don't know. Like, you get mm -hmm. stuff for it. I'm like, no, 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 no. What is money? You're holding a dead tree that someone stamped to tell you that it has a value that someone else has decided to accept. Like, a $5 bill is, is nothing without the context that says that this is a thing. So all currency is is just whatever a society decides it is. Once you kind of realize that, then you can realize as a creator, oh, well, I can make the currency whatever the fuck I want, as long as people agree that it's worth something. Yeah, that connects to something that I stumbled across where I went to a talk on metalworking in Africa, which I was completely ignorant about. I had no idea how... Advanced it was? Oh, yeah. Throughout all of Africa, I just kind of had this Eurocentric view. But what stuck with me about the talk was 
they mentioned trade bars. So instead of having gold in a bar form, you would shape it like a shovel and you would give it to people in ready to use forms. That made sense. You could apply this material and turn it into something useful. That just blew my mind. It makes so much more sense than a piece of paper that says it is value X. <laughs> the funny thing about being a philosophy major is I find myself like being called idiot and different things. I'm like, whoa, hey, now I'm just a dude. And it's like, I get called, what was I called? Like a communist the other day because I commented, I was like, the thing that people forget is that paper currency really ties you to the government. And they were like, oh, that's some communist. I was like, no, no, I'm not, not being mean. Like, but no, like <laughs> literally it's state issued currency, right? So the state decided the value of it. And as long as you live in a state and the state's solvent, it's worth something. But if the state goes away, you're just holding a decorated piece of paper. So there's always that danger with our currency because it truly is tied to the government. So if you have a world that does not have a world authority or a world government, you technically cannot have a non-functional currency. Because really, when you think about it back in the day, the currency was functional. Gold became currency because you wanted the gold, <laughs> you know, like right, you right. wanted the material. And that's what makes currency currency is because it's also usable. The only reason our money works is because we destroy X amount of dollars to keep that up. Without that, eventually somewhere would have a house full of money and then the money would become useless because you don't use it. So if you're doing some sort of creation, especially in some sort of fantasy non-tech, you actually cannot have paper currency. Anybody who has credits or currencies, it wouldn't work. How are you going to spend it? Like physically, how is a currency going to be used? If it's not usable, it will store, which means it loses its value. It's like those weird things that you don't really think about because our society just works, but it's like, no, 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 you can't just shove gold in your game. It doesn't work like that. What does gold do? Yeah, that would be a great thing to explore in a campaign where your heroic team of adventurers, they have a million dollars and then they go to a different culture. Why are you offering this paper? <laughs> this is not currency. Or like you go to like the ones that are like super about nature and you roll up the paper. They're like, ah, you killed the trees. You killed our family. And you're like, <laughs> murderers. Yep. So much opportunity to explore different ideas and settings. That's kind of why I came up with the system is because I thought to myself, well, your two biggest countries don't really get along right now. So there's no way Garuda is going to accept Vinyata currency. And there's no way Vinyata is going to accept Garuda currency. Why would they do that? They don't like each other. They're not required to. There's no global economy. Get this dirty body out of here. What the fuck is this shit? So it was like, okay, if you're a vendor, there's always a way to get what you need. That's just how humans are. And so that's kind of why it's like respect and sway. And the other part was connections, because sometimes it's more about who you know than what you know. And some tabletop games do a good job of that, but a lot of times it's kind of hand-waved and it's just you feel like a random stranger always on a stranger quest, which, you know, is, is fine. But I also, since Swordsfall is a world, a very contained world, I wanted to have that feeling of going to a place that you either know or you have history. Or just the fact of going back. Like, I feel like too often in tabletop games, you rarely ever get to go back to a town. You're always going through nondescript town names that you'll never remember that you have to ask the GM every fucking week. <laughs> every player in Swordsfall is in itself some sort of heroic figure because I very much ascribe to the fact that if you're doing the stuff that you're doing, that automatically makes you some sort of above the average fold. That's why you're having adventures. I'm not going to pretend like you're just average people. You're not average people. You're professionals. In the world full of magic, professional means a different level. Mm -hmm. But that also means you're more visible. So connections matter. 
basically how it works is let's say you're from town A and you guys go to town B. Well, since I don't have gold or anything like that, what happens is you go into town and it's a question of do you have connections? Instead of doing connections in just this town or that town, I have it basically done in groups in almost an MMO sort of way, right? So certain professions are tied to certain places like celestial shields. Their temples that they train in, that they school in, are in Garuda, which is in the north. They're in Seer territory. So in essence, every celestial shield is tied to that area somehow because that's just where you had to go to school. So it makes sense to give people those connections. And that's also where you start off from in terms of how you build a connection flow is your profession and those connections. So if you go to a new town, your celestial shield can be like, oh, I have connections here because Sierra Town, blah, 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 blah. You go to that person and they help you build sway in the town because that's generally what happens. If you're a new person in town, nobody knows who you are. Oh, you're a friend of Hattie McCoy's? Oh, cool. They're cool people. I guess I'll give you a chance. Cool. You just gained a little bit of respect. You gained a little bit of sway. Now it's up to you to build upon that. It's a little bit simpler than it sounds. It's just, you know, when you're checking out boxes and whatnot. But it's just the theme in it so that it feels like going someplace is familiar, but also new, but also something you have to respect. Because if there's something you want in the town, you just don't have the ability to run in with a sack full of gold. It's not D&D. You don't have a treasure chest like that. You go in there and either people know who you are because you gain respect in the area, which gives you sway, or you have to start earning that. Going on a quest for a tribal elder is not necessarily going to get you money. It's going to get you respect. But respect is just as good, if not better than money, because respect, once you earn it, goes a lot longer and a lot farther than gold. So I'm just trying to really have it to where players feel like they're connected into the world beyond what the GM tells them. Because I feel like that's also why being GM can be so hard is because... The onus is everything on you. You're deciding where they go, where they don't go. For some plays, you pretty much have to decide who they are as a person. You're always having to take care of it. And my hope is that since the players can see what the world is, they know where they are, they know a sense of who they are, and they know what the world expects of their profession. Because as well as part of the profession, I have a description of what their profession is like in society, how they're like in a party. So if you basically read whatever your profession is, you know what people are going to think about you, a.k.a. their perception. And at that point, it's just a question of, are you the perception that they think or are you different? It makes it very easy to kind of get into the flow of it. And let's say your celestial shield, which is people expect to be very pious and good and the saviors. So people are always going to automatically give you a little extra respect. It also means that if you are not that kind of guy, you will lose respect faster than someone else because they're like, oh, you're not like any other celestial shield I've known. And you're like, cool, I'm a different person. Yeah, they lost a little respect for you. Except for that shady guy over there, he likes that. You gain respect with him. And it's a very MMO feel, but since it's a tabletop, you know, it's very much GM. So I'm trying to, I'm going to give them tools to make it easier to be like, this sounds like a time to give them respect for this and that. So it's just more flowy. When you start doing that, it involves in the world. It makes it easier to grow because if the world itself is inclusive and it makes you have to respond to it, it kind of makes you have to think about your reactions to it. If you need respect to get that sweet thing you want, it probably is not going to help you to act sexist or racist because you're going to be like, that's cool. Yeah, no one in that town respects that, bro. <laughs> you know how it is. The queen's a woman. You said something sexist. Now we got kicked out the town. Good job. Things like that. The game can have its own natural consequences without hurting anybody. And it's just about understanding like people. You know, you make connections. It's about people. Currency is just a faux way to get around that, you know?
I like that a lot. Long rant, but, but no. me and I, I have a whole thing with currency. It drives me crazy sometimes. Well, and you've got to look at most game systems experience is also very much a form of currency. Oh, we've got to fight everything. So we level up and that incentivize the player to just kill everything, never solve anything diplomatically. And I think what you're suggesting is a great way to encourage players to connect to the world. They have a vested interest, they're building reputation, while simultaneously discouraging them from burning everything down. If you kill everyone in one town, all your connections from that town may affect your relationships in other towns and make everything harder for you later on. Exactly. I think that's a good way to sidestep some of the typical problems players have in these games. I feel like usually that's why players have the problem in the game is because if you don't have a feel for where you are, it's just really easy to run around being a dick. It's that classic Grand Theft Auto issue, you know, where like Grand Theft Auto is really easy to run around and just murder stuff because whenever you're doing that, you don't really care. You know, it's not your save or you're just going to restart it. Like when there's nothing on the line, it's just really easy and if not more fun to be mean and be a dick. So we're just like, sure, I don't care. I can do whatever. But as you start giving the player reasons to be empathetic, it at least makes them think about what they're doing. What I always tell people, especially with like racism, sometimes the issue is you can't ever get people to stop being racist, but you can make it very uncomfortable for them to be publicly racist. True, true. And at least for like a minority, the effect is still the same. Like I know that people are going to be racist. I just don't want to hear you raise your shit. Keep it to yourself. And anything that kind of enforces that ends up making it better in the long run. That's too true. I have one kind of personal question. When I run games or play a character, I love to do accents. Being of European descent, if I do a bad Scottish accent, a bad Italian accent, Irish, whatever, I don't really feel any social pressure. But even with D&D's setting of Cholt, it's very much an African setting. Doing an African accent is something I would probably avoid. <laughs> I feel like it's something that could easily be offensive even if you, again, are well-intentioned, it's hard to do that tastefully. Is there anything that you think that a white player could do in terms of that? Is it something that they should stay away from? Is it a table decision? I'm not going to lie. I've totally sat there and mimicked some accents before some people saying some stuff like, why does that sound so cool? So like, I feel like there's nothing wrong <laughs> with being like, that's cool. It's just an issue when they're blatantly disrespectful about it. I feel like people know when they're being disrespectful. I feel like we've all had that where you have the faux Scottish accent, but would you say that whatever you said in front of your actual Scottish friend, if you would be too embarrassed to say mm -hmm. it around them and they wouldn't laugh, then you probably are over the line. If you think you would laugh and they're a genuinely good person, then fine. You know, like people know when you're kind of venerating them and when you're mocking them. Anybody who's around other people who don't have the accent knows that their accent sticks out. They just don't want to feel bad for it. But it, everybody's been in a situation where someone kind of emulates you or something you do, but you can tell this because they like it, they, like they admire it. And it makes you feel good. You're like, oh, I mean, I've never noticed my accent like that. That's funny. Do I sound like that? Usually what fucks people up is what they say. It's never the accent. It's the stereotypical BS that goes along with the accent. It's one thing to have a character who's Scottish and then try to mimic a Scottish voice when he says stuff. Another thing to have one that's like, uh, haggis, blah, 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 you know, like stereotype spewing. It's that kind of thing. One of the things I have been thinking about, though, and we'll see if I can do it, but I really did want a way to have some sort of spoken voice because there is something to say about a tone. 
And while obviously like the game itself is not Africa, if there's gonna be dialects, I want it to be closer to more of the African sound because there's just some really great sounds. You know what I mean? Like some of the way they say like the O's and whatnot, Jadena. It just it sounds so it's it's different, obviously, than Europe. So I, I've been trying to figure out a way how to encapsulate that. I'm thinking I might try to see if maybe I can get some sort of like uh, not like an audio book, but some sort of audio clips or something that see people see. You know, I'm like, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to get a mood set. It'll be part of the one of the stretch goals for the art book. But I actually have a friend who makes music and we've been talking about doing some like African themed beats, but like modern with like a tribal hint to it. Kind of like how Black Panther did, but just in a different vine. And then having that as part of it so that you can actually have some sort of sound that fits with that Afropunk. It's something I've thought about, it truly, because I really feel like there's nothing wrong with having respect for an accent. I just feel like probably most people don't have enough access to anything that's not stereotypical to be able to play off of. And I won't speak for everybody, but I, I've known a couple guys from Africa who were more than glad to try to teach a language because they have pride in it. They love it. And they've always felt like other people didn't respect it. So it's just a question of really, truly wanting to know it. Like, if you truly are really trying to do a good African accent from somewhere like Ghana, like, you you know what I mean? You really were. Most people won't fault you. There's some that will poke fun at you because maybe you're bad at it. But, you know what I mean? There's a difference between when, when someone sees it, you really are like, that's amazing. I want to learn that. And versus being like, ah, that sounds awesome. Ah, stereotype, 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 stereotype. That kind of thing. Right. You know? Yeah, well articulated. I think putting in some work where if you're going to do that, at least commit to doing it as well as possible. Don't just throw on a weird accent and then talk about stereotypes like you're saying. I found regional idioms are incredibly effective at capturing what makes this culture different. What is special about this region? Like we were talking about with how history is almost more fantastical than any fantasy world, idioms can kind of capture that too. Where for Scotland, for example, long may your lum reek is their version of live long and prosper. It's talking about chimney smoking, but... Out of context, you're like, I have no idea what that person is trying to communicate. And that can really immerse you in the setting. Yeah, there's a bunch of those like that from Africa that I want to use. Like there's one, shine your eye, which is like saying like, watch your back, keep an eye out. Shine your eye. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's, so there's a lot. I love that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of idioms. And obviously, like Africa is such a huge place. There's so many good ones. The interesting thing is trying to figure out ways to bake it into the world. Because I don't want to necessarily info dump people or try to add so much information that it takes away from the feel of it. But idioms and whatnot, they really do give you an insight as to how a culture thinks. It's tricky. One approach I've had is if a player's character is connected to a region, you can give them a little cheat sheet or explain to them specifically what the idiom means because they'd be familiar with it. But I agree, there's a risk of getting clumsy and, oh, you have to do all this research to be on top of it to understand anyone. Especially world building involves a lot of research. I don't fault people for not doing it, but I kind of fault people for doing it. Because if you're <laughs> going to pull from another country culture and it's not yours, then you have to always be honest that you are starting not at nothing. You're starting at less than nothing. You will find out that you have more bad knowledge and stereotypes than not when you start getting into any culture that you think you know anything about that's not yours. There's instantly a huge amount of being like, oh, that's not a thing? Oh, well, that's not a thing? I consider myself a fairly smart dude, and it wasn't like I was blind about Africa. Like, I knew some stuff about it and had taken classes and read it. 
still was constantly like, what? What? Really? Mm. Like all the time, every day. And sometimes that's kind of what got me into Swordsfall more than anything else is because it was a, it became a journey as I was realizing how much bad information that even I had. If a dude who goes into it wanting to know about Africa, who knew a little bit, goes into it and is like, I knew nothing, then everybody else is even at a more disadvantage because you don't have the time to go through it or, or the want or whatnot. And that's not a knock on anybody. But realizing that if you're not actively trying to information, that you are giving bad information was really eye-opening for me. Yeah. And not perpetuating horrible, damaging stereotypes is your responsibility if you're a creator in that context. It really is, man. Because it's like Africa is a really beautiful place. And I realized how much media in the U.S. is very much like, oh, Africa is super poor and has all this stuff, which is totally wrong. has that. So does the U.S. Hashtag all you got to do is go to Detroit and other parts of the U.S. You know what I mean? Like, and you can take pictures of that and be like, third world country, no one would tell the difference. There's shitty places everywhere. But there's also amazing, beautiful, epic cities in Africa. I've seen pictures of places that I've had to Google twice to be like, that was Photoshopped. Nope, that's real. It's one of the most interesting and diverse places that I've ever read about. It has everything. Deserts, has like snow-peaked mountains, it has volcanoes, there's acid lakes. It's <laughs> crazy. It's literally everything you would ever thought about in an adventure tale, and it's just in real life. And it's interesting to me that it's been there forever, and no one has ever really tried to pull from it. Like, they do it a little bit. Every time I crack open a book I haven't read... I feel like I have enough for like 10 to 12 series. The amount of information and how different it is, is just so intriguing. It blows me away, but it makes me wonder what other places have amazing history that has just been never touched, that's been never looked at, never respected. Yeah. And to touch on the philosophical aspect of history, who's writing it? If it's always written by the victor, you're not getting an accurate perspective. And to anyone who's doubting how Eurocentric everything is, look at a world map. Yep. Look at how big Europe is compared to Africa. That's not accurate whatsoever. The U.S. can fit inside sub-Saharan Africa. I looked right. at that and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Which is what? what? <laughs> like that sense of scale and how broken it is. And it's funny you say that about that term, the history of Victor. One of my favorite African idioms, which I came across of, is... Until the lion can learn to write, the hunter will always write his history. And I was like, damn, I like put that. that on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I've got one more question for you. Who is your favorite world builder? Ooh, favorite world builder. Now that I consider myself a real content creator, I've been trying really hard to actually learn more about people. Well, I can't say I have one, but can I give you like a, like a short list of like some shout outs? Oh, certainly. Always got to give a shout out to old school Vampire the Masquerade with a healthy asterisk of current White Wolf and hashtag Zach as a super freaking disappointing and they better get that shit together. So I want to be a regular to say that because it's really disappointing. I have a real love for that and to see any company who can't also recognize that you have to grow, a little sad. I will always add that asterisk until they get the stuff together. But old school vamp in terms of lore, presentation, it continues to be inspiring for me. I still sit down and look at the book I'm creating and I think, okay, is this going to create the feeling that I had when I cracked open Vampire the Masquerade? So props to that and that original team. John Harper, because Blaze in the Dark. I had definitely had a period where I just didn't play tabletop games for a while, so I missed a bunch of stuff. 
the design in that is just crisp. It's clean. I really respect how he and himself took a very deconstructive role in it. And I appreciate that mind to it. Harlem Knights, awesome game. That's actually one, I, if I ever do like a live stream, I want to actually stream. My secret whole one day is to do the collab and anthology with the other black creators and, you know, do like our own epic something, you know. I'm trying to think who wrote it, but I just sat down to, and I started reading Tomb of the Serpent King, an adventure. I know it's a famousy one, but I'm super behind on certain D&D stuff. But the layout they did for Tomb of the Serpent King, I felt like I learned so much. If anybody hasn't checked it out, they should. It's just the best way I've ever seen to lay out an adventure book in like a dungeon because it tries to teach you something in each room. So rather than it being straight up, this happens or this happens, it definitely tries to tell you the theme of the room, why it matters and what the party learns from it. And I just love that concept of building an adventure or mega dungeon where each room isn't necessarily just fight, adventure. It's trying to teach you something, either about the game or how to play it or put you in a position to have to make a choice. That design is something that I've been thinking about. So I'm actually part of the stretch goals for Canals. And if they hit 4,200, I'm going to write the Adventure Songs of Destruction. And I very much intend to see if I can adapt that style to Swordsfall. It's ugh, best adventure I've read. It blew me away. And I was like, this is just the perfect way of thinking. I wish I knew the name of the creators, but my favorite game that I've never been able to play so far is Anima. The book itself is just a fatty, huge book. The game system is completely, utterly, ridiculously complicated. But good Lord, like the thought into it, the ethos into it, the way they break down the characters is probably the most robust character builder I've ever seen in my life. It also would probably take like two, three sessions to build a character unless you've done it before. So right. <laughs> not exactly the easiest. And there's things I want to do. You know what I mean? I'm always trying to be careful because like, I never want to put the cart before the horse, but like, I want to be doing this for a while. You're going to see Swordsville for a long time. And I'd also like to kind of maybe tackle some games that I like that I feel like haven't gotten enough love and maybe try to do my own version. Like, I really love what they do in Adam. I just feel like you just got to decomplicate some math or do some stuff or, you know, stuff like that. That's that's the biggies, man. I just like a good book. My problem has always been I'll like a book for certain things, but maybe not all of it. Like, I like Shadowrun, but I like the lore of Shadowrun. Not so much playing Shadowrun. That setting is pretty awesome. It's super awesome. It's very inspirational, too. Shadowrun is one game that I'm glad is there because it reminds me that you can't have a fatty lore in a book that people will still like. If anything, if you have good enough lore, <laughs> your system can do whatever it wants. Yeah, I played some version of it that was ruthless to the player. And even in that context of failure after failure, I still kept coming back to it because the environment was so engaging. I want to give you the opportunity now to share anything you want about Swordsfall. Um, I was going to write up a post about this, but I'll tell people here. One of the biggest things to know about Swordsfall is that it's definitely not a one shot. It's not a two shot. It's not a three shot. I came into this with the mindset that this was going to be my opus magnum. The world itself is pretty big, and I want to do a ton of stuff with it. Hopefully, people like what they see with their art book and everything else, because I want to do crazy stuff. I want to do like a whole on the ocean expansion with ships. I'm a gamer, so I'm always in my mind thinking, how can I take video game elements and incorporate them in tabletop and still be fun and not get bogged down? 
I want people to have like a grand adventure, one piece style somewhere in the, the grand divide. So trying to put together like a scene, not a cool one and actually have islands and stuff like that. And I got the idea for a detective noir style. And instead of doing like separate games, like a lot of people do, it's all going to be in the Swordsfall universe. It's going to use the same rules. I'm going to have like a collection of like different theme kind of stuff. I was thinking about there's a city that in my mind I kind of thought about as like a mix between Gotham City and Harlem and like a little bit of Detective Noir. And that's kind of where something like the Spirit Investigators come from is because in my mind, I imagine the classic gumshoe, but like a black dude and get the little smoke and there's like a spirit in his ear telling about a new case. And he's like, ah, I guess I'll take it to the case. And it's just like a cool shaft, a little noir with some spiritual. And I want to do stuff like that. So I want to do a separate playbook, maybe like 80, 90 pages, but it would just be stuff to give you a feel of being able to have a detective noir adventure inside a sourceful because the world is big enough to where you can have an adventure inside of a city. And then a month later, you're in Prime City, and that's totally crazy cyberpunk-ish. And I think like the one thing that I wish more people would do is remembering that a world is a world, and that it's so vastly different, and that you can have different themes in one property, and not necessarily have to make a whole new game unless that's what you really want. I truly love the world, and I want people to be able to have different experiences in it. So definitely if people have things that they're interested in, you see me on Twitter and Instagram, all that kind of stuff, because I intend to do this for a long time. So between the World Anvil, which in the future, after the actual core RPG book comes out, one of the things that World Anvil can do that you haven't seen a lot of is you can actually play tabletop games from World Anvil. Just keep in mind that every time you're on the World Anvil page, there will come a moment where I will be able to sit down and make it to where when you're looking at a profession, you can actually make it to where the GM can pull articles from World Anvil. So he can make a campaign and he can pull this country and this organization, this character, and put it together in kind of a portfolio. So when you go to play, you can see, oh, these are the locations we're going to. These are the people we need. So you can kind of read them as you need to or you want to. The GM can point toward it. The things that World Anvil is doing for that is really cool. Just a lot of people haven't really had the opportunity to really utilize yet, and I want to. I really, truly want people to be able to play this for a long time. I also have plans for fan stuff. So fan fiction, I have a plan. There's a little section of World Anvil that'll open up probably after the core book is out. And this is going to be called Tales from Swordsfall. Basically, people that are interested in publishing any sort of fan fiction stuff like that, they can basically send it in and post it there. And my hope is that as tables have games in Swordsfall, that maybe they'll send in like what they did and I can post it. So I can be like... In this little town in Garuda, this happened. And as players, you get to see the other campaigns that the people are doing because people really do run great campaigns, man. Like there's some GMs who come up with some book level quality campaigns that sure other people may not ever be able to play, but they would still like to read about or watch. That's why, you know, actual plays work. So I'd like to have it to where people can post it, you know, so they can be there. You can be proud of that and this is stuff I stuff like that I want to do, and I want to do more of this. I want to do comics, man. I want to do source of comics. I'd love to do an anime one day. I'd love to do like a legit, actual <laughs> like black anime, not just the Japanese thinking what they think black people do, or like an American studio kind of doing like a faux animation. Like I, I literally want to get together black people and director and like have anime. Like I, I want to take this to a different level that like nobody's really explored before. That's all fantastic. I'm really excited to see Swordsfall come to life. To me, it's exciting to see how passionate you are as a creator. 
And I think like all these different aspects you're talking about, integrating the different campaigns tables are running into the overall lore is fantastic. You get that community and everyone is building off of each other. I think that's going to create a wonderful world that's going to feel as real as possible to everyone. I'd love to, man. People ask me if I'm going to do creative comment on the game system. I'm not sure. But I definitely know I at least want it to where instead of it being like a powered by blah, I'd rather be like part of the sourceful universe. I'd rather be about the Afropunk style, the, the, the world, the lore, than necessarily the game mechanics. Because I could totally see someone doing a Swordsfall campaign in 5th edition. Totally about that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, for being so generous with all your time. You're very welcome, man. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the show. In about two weeks, you can look forward to another interview, this time conducted by me, more professionally, and with the writer, Savannah Dooley. She's written for shows like Huge and Nashville. See you in a few weeks. Well, I guess you kind of just listen to me. I hope you hear from me in a few weeks. I'll be looking forward to it, and so should you.